Let's just have our seats while we say a short prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for your breath in our lungs. We thank you for the gift of salvation. We thank you for, we are saved by grace through faith in you. We thank you for your many mercies. We thank you for the blood of your son that was shed on the cross of Calvary to save us, to make us clean, to make us holy, to make us pure, to save us from sin, to save us from death, to save us from the devil. We say we are exalted in Jesus' name. Lord, as we are going to go into your word this evening, we ask that you open our hearts to receive you. That your word will not fall to our hearts and not bear fruit. That it will bear fruit, Lord, in our hearts, in our lives. And I pray for myself, Lord, that even as I'm going to speak, that you shall inspire everything that I'm going to say. That you shall speak through me, for in Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. Amen. Good evening, everybody. Hope we are excited and we are not very cold. It's been a rainy day. I mean, I'm a very big fan of the cool weather. I don't like it. <laughs> okay, so we are continuing our series from the book of First John. So today we'll be looking at the concluding verses of First John chapter 2. So if we are with our Bibles, which I expect that we are, we can open our Bibles to 1 John 2. Because we are going to be reading together. 1 John 2, verse 24 to 29. Are we there yet? Okay. I still see somebody flipping. 1 John is just before the book of or Revel well, Jude Revelation. I was going to say Jude Revelation. She just come back. <laughs> okay, so we are there. First John 2, 24 to 29. So if we are there, we can read together. It doesn't matter the translation you have. Three, two, go. Let that therefore abide in you, which ye have heard from the beginning. If that we you heard from the beginning shall remain in you, Ye also shall continue in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. These things that I have written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. And ye need not that any man teach you. But at the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye that he is righteous... Ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Amen. Amen. So I would like to just put it out there that if when we're reading these verses, if we notice the use of the word abide, it was quite like twice, thrice, depending on the translation you're using. Some translations will say remain in you. Some translations will say continue in you. But all of them mean the same thing. 
So um, if we check the manual, the first thing I have written there is we must abide in God. Everybody say we must abide in God. We must abide in God. Fantastic. So what does abide really mean? You know, I think there's a hymn, one of the many hymns that I love anyway. It says, abide with me, Lord, fast from the evening tide. And sometimes we use that word, oh, abide. Oh, he's abiding there. He's doing this. But when we really look at it, the word abide, the actual word that was used in this passage is derived from the Greek word that is pronounced as meno. And it means to continue, to remain, to dwell, to exist, or to stay in a particular place or in a given space. So when you think of the word abide, the translating it to us as human beings. What it means is when I say, oh, I'm abiding in Lagos. Although that, I don't think that English is particularly correct. But, okay, so let me say, I abide. Hmm. Forgive my English this evening. But the idea is when somebody says they abide at a particular place, what it means is that that person lives in that place. It's more or less like a permanent residency as opposed to a temporal visitation, come and go kind of thing. So when you say the word abide, what it actually suggests is that a thing, an animal, the human being stays at a particular place, stays at a particular spot. Now, using that as the, um, or having that understanding of the word, of the verb abide, when the writer of this passage tells us, let that therefore abide in you, which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you shall also continue in the Son and in the Father. Abide there, remain in you, continue. They are still the same thing. But it's interesting to see that the writer is giving us a condition. He first tells us that there is a need for everything that we have heard from the beginning. So you can see it as a, from the beginning, you, from the moment you started your Christian work, from the moment you gave your life to Christ, everything that you have heard, everything that you have learned, every doctrine, basic um, tenets of the faith that you have gotten so far, it doesn't really matter where you are in your spiritual journey. Like, everybody moves at different paces at different times. God deals with us differently, in different capacities, at different lengths. But here whether you are just starting out in the faith or whether you have gone 20 years in the faith or whether you are, I don't want to say mid-faith because you can't really tell exactly how long you will be in the faith before you go back to the Father. But the idea is that regardless of wherever you find yourself, there is a need for us to ensure that the things that we have received from God, both from his word, both from the teachings that we have gotten through people that God has raised, it's important that these things remain in us. Because if we don't allow these things to remain in us, we stand at the risk of being disconnected from the Father. Amen. Are we together? Okay. So I want us to open our Bibles very quickly to John 15. Because that is another place where Jesus himself stressed on the need for us to abide in him and for and what it means for him to abide in us. So John 15, I will be reading from verse 1 to 7. I want to believe we are there. Okay, John 15, I read quickly. I am the true vine, and my father is the husband man. Every branch, that, every branch in me that beareth no fruit, he taketh away. 
and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. Some translations use prune there. That it may bring forth more fruits. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Amen. So, you know, in the world we live in today, it's very interesting. Sometimes people would say, oh, Jesus didn't say this, so um, it's not important. But I needed, there are people that say that. So I needed to force, I needed us to go to this to see where Jesus himself was stressing on the need for us to remain in him, for us to abide in him. If we say that we have come into the family of God and we are his children, naturally, just like our earthly fathers, if we are, when, for those of us that maybe are still living with our fathers, or even if we're not living with our fathers, or even with somebody that is sort of like a guardian or somebody superior that has the house that we are living in. This person has rules. This person has regulations. It's expected that if you're living with this person, you will naturally adjust yourself to the conditions of the person. And we know that our God is a loving God. Our God is a just God. There is nothing that he tells us to do that does not benefit us. Sometimes we may not realize that, oh, He's asking you not to do this or to do this is actually for your own good. But he doesn't have to tell you everything immediately. The most important thing is that you obey his instructions. So abiding in God requires some sort of submission and obedience. Everybody say submission and obedience. Thank you. Submission and obedience. For some people, they may obey the things in the scriptures, but they haven't really submitted to God. So for me personally, if you submitted to God, naturally you would obey him. But there are some people that claim to obey God, but they don't naturally, they've not submitted to him. And with submission comes a sort of, you know, surrender. You know that, okay, this person, whatever this person says is right. Whatever this person says, I just have to do it because I know that the person knows more than me. So abiding in God... When John is saying that we must abide in God, abiding in God means that for everything that we do, we have to be submitted totally unto God and we have to obey him. But it did not just end there. He said that if, we, if everything that we have heard remains in us, we shall continue in the Son and the Father. And Jesus in John 15 said that anybody that does what that abides in him, anybody that obeys his word, the Father will come and dwell in him. He too, he will come and dwell in him. So we can put two of them on the same, um, well, I say scale, and two of them amount to the same thing, basically. Because if we don't continue in the Father, if we claim to be Christians, but we treat God's word anyhow, I mean, we've learned here that um, the truthness of our knowledge to God is our obedience to him. And Jesus even said here that you can't separate him from his Father, you cannot separate him from his word. It's not possible. So, not 
abiding in God would lead to a Christian having a disconnect from the true source of life. Jesus has said that he is the vine and we are the branches. And just like in our Greek, if you cut off a branch from a tree, you cut off a part of the branch. You don't expect the branch to grow anymore, to be green. Chances that by the time you put that branch maybe on a chair or something, and you go out and come back, it has already dried or it has wilted. True or false? So that's kind of like how it is for us as Christians. If we don't continue in the faith, not just from a theoretical standpoint, but also from a practical standpoint, there is no way that God and and God the Father and Jesus will continue their fellowship with us. So having said that, we move on to the next point in the manual there. So verse 26 says, These things I have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. Um, I think I heard when we were reading, somebody's translation was them that try to deceive you. Yes. But it's very interesting that John was making reference to the people at that, that time, more than 1,000 years ago, that there were people that were actually trying to deceive or seduce Christians who were in the faith. You would think that, oh, as a Christian, I now know God and I can chill and be happy. And that's the end. <laughs> but it doesn't end there. I think it even starts from there because you know God, you're acquiring knowledge of God, you're acquiring truth from the Bible, and the devil is not happy. The devil is like, oh, this one, this is Pastor Femi, now. so now he thinks that he knows God. Abby. I'm going to send one or two people to try and, you know, snuff some things out of him and make him go astray. Well, you can just have use that to, like, have an analogy of how the devil, I'm not saying I'm thinking his thoughts, but something like that. That is what I tell myself anyway. But when we talk about seduction, I mean, a contemporary culture today, there is some sort of, will I say, sensual appeal to it in that the person is trying to, you know, flirt, entice, do one or two things. When you say, oh, this girl is trying to seduce this boy, most of the time that is what comes to our mind. And to an extent, it's not particularly far apart. It's not, it's not like that idea sort of still holds water here. So to seduce somebody in biblical terms is to try to make somebody come out from the truth that they know, to make somebody go astray from the truth that they know, to make somebody wander from the original truth of Christ that they have. And as Christians, it's very important that we constantly have this thing at the back of our minds. Because, I mean, if at that time when John was writing this letter, he was talking about seduction, look at our world today. There are so many things. There are so, there are so many things, different sects that exist in Christianity that claim to be of God, but they are not of God. People that are not even... They don't identify as Christians, but come out and tell you that this Bible, how do you know it's the true word of God? They start to say things like that. People that deny the deity of Jesus. I mean, I think it was in the last teaching of First John where our teacher spoke about 
um, anybody that denies the father also denies the son. And he was talking about the Antichrist and how they appear. And one of the things that they do is to deny the deity and also the humanity of Jesus Christ. So many things. But I want us to look at 1 John 4 very quickly. 1 John 4. Sorry, not 1 John. I'm so sorry. 1 Timothy 4. Forgive me. 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4 from verse 1 to 3. I'll read. Are we there? Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience said with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Amen. So, this is just one portion out of a thousand and one portions of the Bible that talks about deceit, falsehood, seduction. Um, enticement, error, that idea. And if we even look at the scripture, we're going to look at something else in Genesis very quickly. We would see that this is not just a New Testament teaching. Even from the Old Testament, God had been very concerned about his people going astray. I think it was on Sunday when we talk about, okay, no, it wasn't Sunday, but there's a portion of Jeremiah 23, when God was saying woe to the pastors that have led the sheep astray and things like that. And that is what seduction really does. At the core of it, the devil is constantly using different things to lure people out of the truth that they have received. Whether you're just starting in the faith or even people that have gone fine. If we look at um, some, some people on the internet today and I mean the other day I was hearing a story of a man that said he was a pastor for 19 years and just woke up one morning and said, no, that the Bible is a lie. And Jesus said a lot of things. I watched that video and I was cringing inside because I was like, what happened to you in that 19 years? Because you said that you were sharing the gospel and things like that. But later on, I realized that it can be anybody. It really can be anybody. And we have to be extremely cautious. Yes, we may not know the content of the hearts of men. It is God who knows the content of the hearts of men. But what is also our own disposition? Are we people that are reckless Christians? Are we people that, oh, everything goes? Um, sometimes, personally, some people will tell me, oh, other, have you heard of this person's preaching? I've heard of this person's preaching. And maybe because of the kind of person I am, I'm like, wait. I have to go and ask God if I need to actually check this thing out. You may look at it like, oh, it's funny, but there are a lot of people that exist in the world today that claim to be actual prophets, actual teachers, that claim to even be Christians. Let's not even limit it to just the fivefold ministries or people that come to preach on the pulpit. There are even people that probably exist in our circles that tell, that have this um, appearance of all well and good and be Christian. They can speak all the whole Christian lingo. I think we call it Christianese. They can say the whole Christianese. They can give you the whole high five. Even when it's time to pray, they'll be 
you know, praying in tongues and all those things. And I'm not saying like praying in tongues is not good. It is very important. But we should not be deceived by appearance. We should not be deceived by appearance. And when the book of First John, when John is saying that because of the people that were already trying to deceive the people there, he was writing these things. It's something that we should pause and ask ourselves. Okay, so if this is not the only portion of the scriptures that talks about seduction, and even Peter would make reference to the fact that there were people that were twisting Paul's scriptures, there were people that were doing this, and then somehow, somehow, over time, the, even in this Bible, we've learned that God gave scriptures to man so that we can be equipped, we can be um, reproofed, we can have sound knowledge, we can be able to equip ourselves and things like that. It begs the question, why is it that many of us Christians don't take the word of God seriously? Because if we take the word of God seriously, and we are very cautious, and we rely on the Holy Spirit, which is going to be the next point on, in this teaching, and we are vigilant, we will not be at, at risk of being deceived. Amen. When somebody doesn't know the truth, they can be deceived. They have a higher susceptibility to being deceived, to being lured out. It's almost like you're telling the person, oh, like the story of Adam and Eve in the Bible. I was reading it again this morning, and God really opened my eyes to the fact that we think it's just a, oh, Satan told um, Eve to, to eat the apple, and then, sorry, it's not apple, it's the fruit. Because the Bible doesn't say that it's an apple. It's the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then when she self she knew that God had said what? That she should not eat of that tree. And the devil started to give her lies here and there and truths here and there. I want us to quickly just look at it. Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read it quickly. Genesis chapter 3 from verse... One to seven. Yes. From verse one to seven. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the gardens, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God had said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of it thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sold fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. Amen. Amen. Now, if we see the characteristic, or the adjective, rather, that the Bible used to describe the serpent, it said that the serpent was more subtle. subtle. And seduction is not in your face. It's never in your face. If it was in your face, you would, you would obviously be able to say, come, go away. You're telling me a lie. But it's very cunning and crafty and very 
gentle, it's, and it's patient. It's patient because it doesn't matter how long it will take. The devil is ready to take as much as long a time just to get somebody out of the faith. And we've learned here that the devil is not a human being, so he doesn't get tired. He is ever ready to do and undo things. But it's interesting that the Bible says that the serpent was more subtle. And then when he started to talk about why the woman should eat it, he did tell them that their eyes were going to be open. Actually, it wasn't a lie. If we think about it, their eyes were open because even the Bible says that their eyes were open. But not only did he tell them, will I say, one side of the truth, he hid the other part of the truth in that they were going to die. He lied. So he kind of did a half-truth, I don't want to call it omission, but half-truth mixed with lies. Wrap it up, up in a, like, a fine-looking pie and serve it to the woman. And then the woman bought the idea. And that's exactly how seduction works. Because the devil knows that if he comes to your face and tells you, um, what can I use as the example? Jesus did not die on the cross. Obviously, you will know that he's a liar. But if he comes to your face and tells you, oh, you know, you can actually know your future by checking the astrological times or by looking at tarot cards or fortune telling, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not anything harmful. Just, it's not just to know your future. After all, did God not say before I formed you in the womb, I knew you through and through. Sometimes he may even slap one Bible scripture here, but if you really check underneath it, there's so much lies, there's so much deception there. And it's something that as Christians, we have to be very careful about. Ephesians 4.27 says that we should not give room to the devil. You can think of it in so many ways. We should not expose ourselves. And I'm, this is not, I'm not even talking about like extreme, having extreme views or things like that, no. But if we know that there is something in our life that can put us in a position where the devil can take us out of God, why don't we start doing something about this? Amen. Are we together? If there is something in our lives, maybe you're the kind of person that... Mm, I'm trying to look for examples to use. Maybe you're the kind of person that likes movies, for example. Movies are no bad. What kind of movies are you watching? What kind of movies are you watching? Are you the type that... You may just watch, um, I'm not a movie buff, but I know that there are some movies that have canceled. And I'm not going to start calling the names because when you hear what they say, it may in quotes sound like a joke and they're trying to like blaspheme or say things like that. For example, you're reading maybe books like, for example, Da Vinci Code or things like that, Angels and Demons. Why? That's just laws of seduction or art of seduction, rather. That's one of the thousand ways that the devil can can seduce people, can deceive people. You may think to yourself, oh, I'm curious, let me know what's inside there. But you don't know that there are spirits attached to seduction. We've read it in First Timothy 4, that in later times there will be seducing spirits. So seduction has its own spirit. And if you're not careful, if you expose yourself to these things, you stand at the risk of being lured away from the faith. And it's usually a gradual process. Amen. So we move on to the next point, which is the anointing of God shows us the truth. Everybody say the anointing of God shows us the truth. 
Great. So we're still on First John 4. Sorry, First John 2. First John 2, chapter... First John chapter 2, rather, verse 27. It says, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. And ye need not that any man teach you, but at the same, as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is not lie. And even it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. So we see the same abide coming here again. But this time, the verse 27 is like a continuation of verse 26. So in verse 26, John was saying that he was writing all the things he was writing because of the people that were deceiving um, the Christians at that time. And then he now furthermore went to emphasize that the Holy Spirit, which is also the anointing, lives in us. And because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we don't need any man to teach us because the Holy Spirit is in us and the Holy Spirit is the bearer of all truth. So before we go down into this point, I just want us to quickly look at John chapter 16. Since we're shuffling between different books of John. John chapter 16, verse 7 to 15. I'll quickly read because of time. John chapter 16, 7 to 15. It says, Nevertheless, that's Jesus speaking to his apostles before he went up to die. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter which not come will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I, ha I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. How beth, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, and... Whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. Amen. So I read that because um, in that passage, Jesus really told us the essence of why the Holy Spirit has come and dwelt in us after his departure talking about conviction of sin for the world talking about conviction convicting this um, the world of righteousness and of judgment and then he furthermore went to talk about how the spirit of god is the spirit of truth the holy spirit is one that knows all things and if john in our root scripture first john 2 is saying that we don't need man to show us the truth because we have the holy spirit you may ask me so if john is saying that why is odera standing in front of the pulpit teaching i mean he has said he doesn't need any man and we don't need any man to show us anything to tell us anything all we need to do is to rely on the holy spirit somebody may be thinking that but that scripture doesn't um contradict or or will i say 
dispute the fact that God has raised people in the body of Christ to, to when I say, expatiate on his word so that Christians can be built. Instead, what John is saying is that even when you hear the things of God or when you go to church and you listen to sermons or you listen to messages or podcasts, you can actually test these things that you've heard because you have the Holy Spirit living in you. Are we together? Are we together? So because you have the Holy Spirit in you and because you rely on the Holy Spirit, you're able to decipher when somebody claims to be of God and they're telling you a lie. Because you have the Holy Spirit living in you and because you walk with the Holy Spirit, because if you don't walk with the Holy Spirit, he's not a noisemaker. He's not, um, he's not like the devil that likes to make noise in our ears or in our minds. He's a very gentle spirit. So if you don't submit to him, he would talk for a while and after that he may just be quiet on some certain issues. But for somebody who constantly walks with God, constantly submits to the Holy Spirit, even when they listen to messages or somebody is telling them something, oh, God said I should tell you this, oh, God said I should tell you this, the Holy Spirit that lives in you would either confirm that thing that you're hearing to be true or tell you, nah, 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 don't listen to that guy, that guy is lying to you. And we can even tell from our own experiences, it may have happened to us. So that's what John is saying then, that we don't need man. We must not rely. Our source of truth comes first from God. Yes, God may, would appoint people at certain points to help us, to guide us, depending on our levels of uh, in our Christian journey, to guide us, to help us, to mold us, and to help us so that we can be fully equipped. But even when we are listening, when we are in, whether it's a corporate fellowship like this or even on your day-to-day -day, someone that you know that is a christian walks up to you and tells you oh i was doing this thing do you hear of this message ah this guy is bad this that 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 oh listen to this message and you listen to it by the time you're almost first thing god is already telling you no mother turn off that thing i don't want you to hear it because that is not the truth amen, amen. so it's important for us as christians to rely on god and also for us to know god for ourselves a lot of times Many people that claim to be Christians don't know God for themselves. And because they don't know God for themselves, even when the Holy Spirit is living in them, because they are not, they've given their life to Christ. Yes, they've accepted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, but we've said that salvation is a journey, starts from there. They suddenly want to just put all their trust in the arm of the flesh. And I think during two Sunday schools ago, ago we learned on trust. And the Bible said, I think it was in Jeremiah, I said, cause be the man that puts his trust in the arm of the flesh. So as Christians, we also need to know God for ourselves. We have to ask God, okay, God, today I want to read this passage of the Bible. I want you, Holy Spirit, to open my eyes and reveal the truth to me. Not because I cannot be edified through something that you tell somebody else, but I don't want to rely on that. Those things are great and good, yes, but beyond that, I want to be able to say, oh, the Holy Spirit told me this today, and I'm living by it. I want to be able to say, oh, God, I know God for myself. I'm having an experience with God. I'm having an encounter with God. I've had an encounter with God. I can say, oh, I know God in the area of this subject. God has taught me this thing. God has shown me this thing. I don't have to always rely on any human being for every little thing. Amen. Great. So we're moving well. The last phase of this teaching our manuals, we have it titled, Our Confidence at His Return. Everybody say, Our Confidence at His Return. Wow. 
great. So do we know who is returning? Who? I'm asking you people, who is returning? You people don't sound confident. Jesus is returning. Jesus is coming back. And verses 28 and 29, I'm going to read that quickly, and we'll talk about that, and then we'll close. It says, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Amen. So before we look at the, um, the supporting scripture that I have in the manual, this verse, these verses tell us first of all that Jesus is coming back. So it's not a negotiation. It's going to happen. But Paul, um, John was talking about the fact that not only does abiding in God sustain us for our present, but it also sustains us for our future. We know that as Christians, we're not um, citizens of this place. Our citizen is of where? Great, thank you. Our citizen is of heaven. I'm a citizen of heaven first before I'm a Nigerian. I don't know about you, but that's how I am. So, if we know that our citizenship is of heaven. We know that we are pilgrims here on earth. We know that we have just a short time to live here on earth. It is important that we live our lives the right way. And here, this is almost like the third or fourth time the writer was emphasizing on the need for us to abide in him. We've said that abiding in God involves submission and obedience to his word. But not only does it just... Um, Secure us like in this present in that, oh, God is saying, oh, don't do this, don't do this. Oh, it's because next tomorrow something may have happened or things like that. But also for our future. The more we walk with God, the more we constantly fellowship with him, the more we submit ourselves to him, the more we obey, the more we are strengthened, the more we are assured that, okay, oh, I know that, okay, one day I will be standing beside God and I will be asking God some interesting questions that I have down right here in my head. Or maybe I won't even need to have to ask those questions. But the point is, I am eager. With confidence comes an assurance. When you hear the word confidence, you hear you almost think of trust. You almost think of, oh, I have an assurance that that thing will not fail me. And here, we are, we are actually encouraged to live in God and to abide in him, to continue in him, so that when Jesus comes back, we will not be fidgeting. So when we were in primary school, when our headmaster, Mr. John Okokomioko, a Ghanaian man, somebody does something in class, and then you know you're the culprit, and at my class then, we don't like to collect cane for each other. There was no unity in that kind of thing. So we'll not be doing like this on the assembly ground. We'll be fidgeting. And it's kind of like the same thing in that at that time when we were kids, who did this? You don't even need to ask too much. From the person's position, you can already know that ah, this person is the one that did this. Now you take the person out. And whatever punishment that person needs to get will be meted out to him or her. But here is also kind of like the same thing in that we don't want to be people that when Jesus comes back, will start biting our fingernails. Of course, it may not be like that. 
I'm not saying it's going to be like that, but the sentiment behind it, you start by saying, oh, I don't know, ah, what will God think of me? No, I'm not sure. At some point, I was complacent. At some point, when God tells me to evangelize to this person, I'll be like, oh, God, anything you want to do, do, Jerry. Or, I'm not sure. No, I was going to church. I was a worker, but there was no connection with God. I didn't have that fellowship with him. You're beginning to doubt yourself. And as children of God, we can't afford to be in that situation where we're not looking forward to the return of God. We're not looking forward to Jesus' return. We all know how it's going to be. There are people today that are Christians, if you ask and you say, oh, are you looking forward to the return of Christ? I have people that have told me, no, they are not. Yes, and they are Christians. At some point in my life, too, when I was an active churchgoer, and not an active Christian. <laughs> Amen. We thank God for salvation and deliverance. But there was some point in my life when if people asked me, what was your greatest fear? I would say fear of not making heaven. It was a very potent fear I had. Sometimes I would say it and I don't even think I even really understood what I was saying. But I just knew that it's not after doing all these things on this earth. I'm not now make heaven. And even then, how much did I know? How much did I know? I was more of a um, routine than relationship person with God. But it's kind of like the same thing in that it will never make sense for you to labor so much here on earth and then you still don't even know what is going to happen to you. Somebody who plants a seed in the ground, they have an expectation that the seed will bring forth fruit a tree and then they are looking forward to something oh i know that okay i planted corn after like four or five months i'll get my corn i'll roast it i can boil it i can give some to some people in my church things like that but it will not make sense for us to be children of god on this earth and we live lives where we can't even actually say okay if i leave the earth if god calls me home today do i know where i'm going to be it's something that we really, really need to ask ourselves. So I want us to quickly look at Revelations, Revelation chapter 3 before we go. So that we hear the words of Jesus himself. That will be an encouragement to every one of us, including myself. Revelation 3, 7 to 13. Um, are we there? Okay, so I will read. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, that's Jesus speaking, write, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and has kept my word, and has not denied my name. Behold, I will make thee of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make thee to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. 
Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit said unto the churches. Amen. So I read this because, again, Jesus was the one that was speaking. I think today I've been doing right that then. Jesus needs to also, so those of, in case we are, we have people that have a very interesting view about things of the Bible. But Jesus himself was commending the church at Philadelphia and was telling them that because they had held on, because they had not compromised in their worship, because they had lived true to his name, because they have done the things he had asked them to do. They had been obedient to his word. He too was going to stand by them. He was going to keep them safe and he was going to write upon them the name of my God, Jerusalem. And that's a beautiful passage for us who are currently working with God to encourage us because as we've read in First John, every man is going to get rewarded or recompensed from his work. Usually we think of reward as good things, but sometimes, for me, reward is not, it doesn't have a, it's not, it's neutral. It's that good or bad, depending on what you do. And as believers, we need to ensure that we are abiding in God so that our eternity is secure. So that when Jesus comes back, we won't have to start worrying about whether we are going to make heaven or whether we're not going to make heaven or whether God will give us another chance. Because there are people who think, oh, there are some people that say, oh, I had a near-death experience and then somehow, somehow, God gave me another chance. And there are people who say, no, since he had it, I to have it. It's not like that, though. It's not like that. It's not. You will be amazed that there are people that have that mindset. It's not like that. Jesus said that I will show mercy on who I will show mercy to. And we cannot afford to wait till when it's the 11th hour or have a fire brigade approach. Because we don't know when we're going to go. Either we're going, when we're going to die or when Jesus is going to come back. But the last verse says that if we know that God is righteous, we know that everyone who does righteous things is born of him. This is just to further emphasize that you can't say you're of God and you're not living a holy life. You're not living according to the salvation that you have gotten. I mean, the book of Philippians says we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And what that implies is that because of the gift of salvation that you have received, and as you walk with God, God starts to open your mind and really show you that if not for the fact that he saved you, you won't be here. If not for the fact that God saved me, I will not be standing here. I don't know where I would have possibly been. I don't want to even think about it. But we have to live out this salvation. It's not enough to say, oh, I'm a Christian. Um, my profile says Christian. But our pastor says it so many times. You say, oh, child of God, worker of Jesus, servant of the Most High, spiritual gymnasts, so many things. I mean, those things are great. I'm not disputing that. But when it comes down to it, what is your life saying? What is your life saying? How is it for you? Are you somebody who doesn't seek to do the things of God, doesn't want to submit to God because you think that, oh, yeah, God has saved me. Once saved, always saved uh, mentality. It's not always like that. 
if you don't work out your salvation, there's a problem. So today we've learned a lot. We've learned that we must abide in God. We've learned that submission, total submission. I like to emphasize the total in front of that submission. Because submission may be halfway. Total submission and total obedience to God is very important. The Holy Spirit that lives in us, not only does he give us truth, not only does he bear witness to the things of God, not only does it hold us, restrain us when we're about to go into error or even when people try to bring false things to us, but he's the one that also gives us the grace to obey God. He's the one that gives us the grace to submit to God. We've learned that seduction in the body of Christ is a big deal. It is real. It happens. We see it every day. Nobody can say that they don't know. And just in case you may not know, it is real. The devil is constantly seeking whom to devour, whom to take. And we as Christians, we must ensure that we don't give room to the devil. If we're struggling with things, we must not put ourselves in situations where we'll be exposed to sin or exposed to wrong doctrines or exposed to different things. We've also learned that Jesus is coming back and we have to ensure that we live right so that we'll be confident of where we are going to. We cannot afford to labor here in vain. We cannot afford to labor here in vain because it will make sense at the end you would appear before God with cold feet. Not cold feet from a holy fear of God, but cold feet from a, I don't know what God is going to tell me. I'm not, I'm not, I don't have an assurance of my salvation. And I pray that God will help us.